episode 319, How Do We Improve Outcomes in Skilled Nursing and Also Assisted Living Facilities? Today, I speak with Grace Terrell, MD. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. I'll tell you what I wanted to figure out. How does care improve in SNF, skilled nursing, or assisted living facilities? My starting point in contemplating a possible path toward this goal was advanced primary care. There is so much talk and evidence these days about advanced primary team-based care and how much patients like it, the low-value care it can potentially prevent downstream, and the patient outcomes it can create. But in general, these advanced primary care models are talked about for patients in the community, not really for the intensely vulnerable populations inside facilities. So where do these worlds collide? if they do in fact collide. Today I'm speaking with Grace Terrell, MD. Dr. Terrell is a practicing general internist. She is also chief executive officer of Eventus Whole Health, which is a company that is focused on medical care for medically vulnerable adults, specifically those who live in skilled nursing facilities, assisted living facilities, or reside at home and cannot make it into clinics or otherwise get care. Dr. Terrell and her team at Aventus have done some really powerful work bringing this kind of advanced primary care model, whole person integrated primary care, into long-term care facilities. And she shares some of the promising results of doing so during our conversation. But, you know, for more, go to links in the show notes. One point that Dr. Terrell made, which I found really interesting and maybe not in a good way, is that in an FFS world, there is really zero financial incentive beyond consumerism to improve care. Skilled nursing facilities get paid a set of Medicaid slash Medicare rates, and that's it, whether the facility is awesome or it kind of sucks. In this conversation, we also get caught up on the latest goings on in the post-acute and assisted living parts of our industry, which, of course, were decimated by COVID, pretty much bashing it from all directions. Add to the challenges of 2020 the general truth that SNF and assisted living care for years has been chronically underfunded and highly regulated in ways that aren't super productive of better care in many cases. Bottom line, there's a lot of work that needs to be done so that all of us have the best chance of great holistic medical care when we're older. And we shouldn't forget the lessons that we've learned in the community to make that happen. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Grace Terrell, MD, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. If we're talking about post-acute care, and obviously you have an unprecedented window into what's going on in these facilities, be they SNFs, skilled nursing facilities, or assisted living, irrespective of the recent report in the New York Times, which we could probably go down a huge rabbit hole into relative to the star ratings for, for nursing homes. But what's been the pressure from your perspective on these facilities to improve the level of care that potentially they've historically at least had a reputation for giving? Well, the industry is really at a breaking point, right? So they were getting ready for PDPM, you know, which was going to be a real organizational change in the way Medicare was paying for acute care as it related to fiscal therapy. It was going to be much more of a value-based care. It might have been something that would have advantaged them when wham, they got hit by COVID. 
So there is the whole crisis that they're now in secondary to not really having the funds for the type of infection control and personal protective equipment that they need. And the industry itself is in a real pickle. I mean, the average facility is over 40 years old. A lot of it was not designed to be what we would consider patient-centered architecture for this day and time. So infection control and all the things that they need to do are difficult at best. And um, really, the whole industry has to be thinking about as a lot of the operating deficits got worse, are there now some opportunities where we can actually reorganize, rethink, redesign how the whole industry might look in ways that could, number one, be better for patients, but could be economically feasible. And what are the opportunities? And you've mentioned infection control a few times. If if I'm a really well-running SNF, like I provide amazing care, do I have fiscal opportunities that a middle-of-the-road facility doesn't have? In the fee-for-service healthcare system, so long as you meet minimal standards, everybody sort of gets paid the same, right? They get paid the Medicare rate or the Medicaid rate, if it's more of a long-term care situation, or the Medicare Advantage rate, there's very little commercial insurance that will allow you to differentiate. So the problem right now is that there is not a pay-for-value or pay-for-performance per se. In theory, that's what the star ratings should do, but they really just haven't worked out that way. So I think the opportunity, if you're just absolutely excellent in the future, is going to be really essentially on being able to fill beds when others aren't. I mean, the entire industry is going to be challenged by the provision of similar services at home or potentially in assisted living space. In the future, it may be that you're going to compete on actual quality and outcomes as opposed to processes and regulatory standards for those things. So you think it's going to be a consumer-driven, that consumers will drive quality improvement to the extent that if you're trying to figure out a place to send mom or grandma, you're going to be making choices. So those that are mediocre are going to not be able to put heads in beds because they're competing against home. I think so. I mean, unless you suddenly had some real differentiation in the payers and how things are paid for. And I think that that will be a long haul. You know, Medicare, whether it's anything through nursing home compare or many of the other things that they're doing to improve the industry, only has a few tools, right? And part of it can be reporting types of things for which you can do things like star ratings. So, you know, you can try to differentiate. But ultimately, if you meet their standards, they're going to pay you. What has to happen above and beyond that is a much better alternative. I think a consumerist approach is going to have to be focused on information. The other thing, though, that may end up being the case for some SNFs is that you'll see value-based partners choosing who they want to partner with. So if you have a healthcare system that is now going to be getting population payments, they may say, we're going to work with these four SNFs and not these four SNFs. And so part of the competition may not be at the consumer level, but it may be at the uh, level of somebody else that's in a value-based contract, sort of centers of excellence, if you will. Yeah. So we've got, you know, bundled payments where 
a health system, a local health system might be receiving, you know, one payment for an episode of care and they want to make sure that the sniff that they're working with doesn't wind up, let's just say, creating complications that are costly. Also, you've got the 30-day readmit. So if a sniff is causing a lot of readmissions, I could see how a health system might not be super inclined to be sending additional patients there. And then, you know, we have, I don't quite understand this one, new payment reform models of ACOs. Sure. If you're a large integrated health system and you're going to try to drive the cost out of your of your model, the first thing you're going to do is say, well, let's take, let, take it out of somebody else's hide, not ours, right? So part of the problem has been that there's been this disincentive between the SNFs and the health system. So if a health system is basically an ACO, they say, well, let's send this patient home as opposed to a SNF. It opens up a bed where we can put somebody else in it, but it's going to be cheaper for us if they go home, provided that they don't come back. And so in the past, if you had that situation, you had SNFs that were really seeing all the value-based care, the accountable care organizations as being a threat to their business model, which was based on heads and beds, just like the hospital. If you've got that incentive now at the hospital level to lower cost, then you're going to want to either not send them to a SNF or send them to a SNF that is going to sort of not be sending them back unnecessarily and is going to provide uh, good care. So again, you're starting to get a differentiation based on quality. It's just in those cases, the person that will be measuring quality is going to be the health system. As is probably evident and and going to be more so moving forward into the future when there is the alternative that patients who are somewhat capable can sniff at home, if that's a term. The ones that are actually in the facility on premises are obviously going to be highly complex patients. Given how long you have been improving care in this space, do you want to just level set If I'm going to provide the best possible care within a SNF environment, what's the basic maybe pillar or principle that has to be true for this to happen? It's what I believe in what our company is trying to provide, and that is it has to be whole person care. And a lot of people throw that term around a lot, but it actually is something that really is true. If you're thinking about somebody's needs from a much more holistic point of view, which includes their mental health, what primary care they need, what medications may or may not be interacting with one another, who their family is and how they're actually experiencing, you know, the environment they're in, what types of food they like, whether they like music, all the types of things that each and every one of us would want our caregivers to be thinking about if it were us. Quite often it's not done in institutionalized care or it's done as an afterthought. But if you organize models of care around it, then I think you can make a real difference. You can make a difference in outcomes. You have less depression. You have less revisits to the hospital. And you have the ability with integrated medical care to also reduce the amount of complications from inappropriate medications, unnecessary testing, and all the things that we know happens in the fee-for-service sort of siloed medical system. Let's maybe follow the story here. So the way whole person care works in your model, let's just say we've got, you know, Grandma Jane and she's admitted to a facility. How does this whole person care, how does it kick off? Like what's step one? It would be in its ideal form, a team-based approach to this person. So 
at the admission to the facility, there should be, as part of that initial process, some real conversation if Grandma Jane's able to or with her family if she's not of understanding and getting to know who this person is and what they need. It's not looking at a bunch of forms in North Carolina, the FL2 form, to see what medicines she's on or to go through a checklist of those things are important, but it's really looking at the person themselves. And then there has to be the ability for a team of people to think through with the patient and with their families what what care is needed and what the goals of care are and do it up front. Is it a nurse that's talking with Jane or is it a case manager? Like who's conducting that initial conversation? It depends. It depends on the way it's organized and who is in the facility. So basically start where we may start. It might start with a nurse practitioner the day that the patient comes in, has an interview, a time with the patient where you're really looking comprehensively at what the patient's needs might be, not just what a primary care provider provides, but what needs to be thought about much more comprehensively, including mental health or other services. Also thinking about how there may be needs that the family has with respect to communication. And so our team would basically have a huddle and come up with a plan that would typically start with primary care, but would provide the other services as needed, which we would screen for in our interview with the patient. If you're going to take the facility focus, which is what you originally asked, I think that this becomes an integrated part of it. Whether it's a social worker or whether it's a RN or some other person, there needs to be somebody who their very first job at the facility is to make sure that the patient's needs are met. So in a typical, you know, regular old facility, you have a medical director, you've got a director of nursing, you have a consultant pharmacist. So theoretically, the three of them could work together and provide care for a patient in an integrated kind of coordinated care model. But yet, obviously, it doesn't tend to work that way. The people that you're talking about that are there at the facility are are very much part of the day-to-day care that somebody gets, but it's not the medical care. The medical care is still provided in the traditional ways by nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physicians physical therapist, and other clinicians. Are you inferring that those that are within the facility, they're not really a coordinated, integrated team that is caring for the patients that are in that facility, that the patient is going elsewhere? Certainly, the executive directors and the nurses and all the rest that are there caring for the entire patient population are part of the the team as well. But there's the team that's employed by the facility or the operating company, and that would be the people that you're talking about. But they do not write orders. They do not make diagnoses. They do not do the traditional things in healthcare that clinicians do. They are part of a larger clinical team. And they're a crucial piece of it in in nursing homes because um, so much of the other parts of care that I would call non-medical care is crucial. I understand that what's happening externally is that you know, you've got 10 specialists that are all prescribing their own meds and they're all prescribing their own care plans. And, you know, maybe there's three meds that are contraindicated, but the patient's taking all three of them and it may not necessarily be discovered because nobody wants to de-prescribe a med. You know what I mean? Like that's kind of the current situation that's going on from what I understand. So like, I guess my first question is, do I have that right? The average patient who gets admitted to a nursing home is on a ton of medication 
a lot of it is not appropriate in that setting. It was it may have been appropriate in the hospital setting. And a lot of it is is medication that interacts with one another. And so there's been a lot of work done over the years in understanding that reducing the types of medications that people are on in nursing homes can actually decrease their uh, bad outcomes. They have less falls, they have less delirium, they have less readmissions to the hospital. And so it does require integrative care. It does require somebody, as you said, to be steering the ship. And so my medical group, that's exactly what we do. So we have a primary care physician. If they're in a skilled nursing facility, that doesn't necessarily just keep everybody on all the medication that they came in on. We also, for anybody that has a mental health diagnosis, particularly if they're on lots of medications, we we get our mental health providers involved and we have nurse practitioners who specifically look at deprescribing from the psychiatric medication point of view. And we've got great results from that. So we've got some data from, from Medicare Compare that shows the number of medications that are prescribed before we get into a facility for psych med is reduced. If we've got primary care and then have psych med involved in it below national averages and below what it was before somebody was there. So we are doing integrative care and are doing it in a way where we're looking at things and thinking about it comprehensively. So in some facilities, they have a pharmacist that may have that consulting pharmacist have that same strategic approach because a lot of medications that different specialists use are very similar. And so by looking at those things and driving the ship, you can really make a great deal of difference. We've been able to do that. So, you know, typically there is a consultant pharmacist who is tasked to help reconcile meds. Why is it that the situation that you described when you first, you know, go into a sniff exists, given that, you know, every single facility does have a consultant pharmacist? So pharmacists can make suggestions to providers physicians, nurse practitioners, others don't necessarily do what a pharmacist suggests. And in our situation, we have providers that are tasked with doing these uh, same types of things. They will work with all the consulting pharmacists that are in a facility, but it's part of our just DNA that we're we're looking and thinking about deprescribing as being something that in most situations, if done right, is good for patients. So say you deprescribe something that the fancy cardiologist prescribed. I mean, obviously there's a degree of, I don't know, self-confidence for, you know, a PCP to change an order that a specialist wrote. That's not true. I mean, if you are seeing yourself as being the physician that is responsible for the patient's well-being in front of you, then you do what you have to do. Now, it's nice with electronic medical records in this day and time that you can see the thinking of the cardiologist in your example or the, um, you know, the reason for it, and you can communicate back. But particularly with the population of patients that you're talking about in a skilled nursing facility or the ones that Aventus takes care of in assisted living or making house calls to their homes. This population doesn't necessarily do well with the typical medications that are prescribed in general by specialists or the doses may be too high. And because internists and geriatricians specialize in medically vulnerable adults, quite often that medication is changed. You're really talking about, I guess, some of the status issues that are have been out there traditionally in, in um, 
healthcare, but in the population of patients we take care of, more often than not, the geriatricians and the internists are the ones who have the greater skill set and knowledge with how to actually manage those patients best. I interviewed Dr. Doug Eby from the NUCA system in Alaska, which has had amazing success providing, you know, coordinated care as a basis for their whole system. They had had the opportunity to build their system from the ground up, you know, like they came in, did a total teardown <laughs> and then rebuilt from the ground up around an advanced primary care model. What I find really interesting about what you're doing is that obviously there is a lot of infrastructure that is in place already that is not going anyplace fast, but yet your team has in a way discovered how to work within that existing context and provide this advanced primary care, which is basically what you're describing, that you have a person that is your advocate that is working with you, you know, the patient and determining, steering navigating, helping make sure that everything, that the care is reconciled into one care plan as opposed to getting 16 from 16 different physicians. Well, most individuals in healthcare do not have the opportunity that Doug did at NUCA. I know him and I've heard him speak and it's phenomenal what they were able to do. Most of us in healthcare, and this has certainly been true my entire career, don't have the opportunity to build something from the ground up. You have to work in the system that you're in. I think that there's a few principles that will allow you to do that. And one is most people in healthcare want to do the right thing. And so if you start with a patient-centered point of view and understand what is the better or best care that can be provided for somebody and design care models around that, and understand the constraints of whatever payment system you're in at the time or a regulatory system as it relates to SNF, and then really work within the system around some of the design principles of good care, you can get a lot of traction and you can make a lot of difference. You know, there's a lot of data out there showing that integrated care makes a significant amount of difference in terms of the care that's provided. And so long as you can do it in a way that's sustainable, and there's a lot more traction there than you might think, more often than not, the better care will ultimately be what, what occurs. Despite all the you know, things that are bad about our current healthcare system, there are many things that are better than it was 10 years ago. A lot of it has to do with sort of rethinking models of care. You listed maybe three must-haves. One of them is to be patient first. Another one is to understand the regulatory constraints and the payment models and ensure that you're working within them you got to kind of have those three things in order to design a sustainable system based on what you said. And then you said it's got more traction than you might think. What did you mean by that? Well, if you look at just a lot of innovation that's going on out there, if you look at what Medicare has induced with some of its pay-for-performance mechanisms, you see that things that we used to not pay a lot of attention to, such as the number of diabetic eye exams, the number of foot exams that are performed on diabetic patients, have made a difference once we had to start measuring and thinking about these things. If you look at some of the models of care that are being organized around virtual care for various populations, some of the work that's done, my friend Rashika Fernandez-Paul's group, Iora Health, you see a patient-centered approach that's using technology. More and more people are thinking about integrated models of care. 
And um, my experience has been that we're making progress on that front. Speaking of integrative models of care, there's just another article that came out the other day in Health Affairs, once again, proving what seems to be coming pretty ubiquitously non up for argument. The idea that an integrative care team and model definitely will produce better patient outcomes, happier patients at a lower cost than a solo practitioner of any kind. And it, it seems like, I mean, and that's pretty much what NUCA is, is also doing with the PCP steering the ship, but then with all these a diverse kind of set of skills, behaviorists and pharmacists, et cetera, supporting them. One of the things that you have said is that it's it's a tough cultural change for a physician to go from a solo, I'm going to do it all, into this sort of team environment. What are the ways that you have found, you know, why is that difficult and how does a facility create providers, you know, physicians in a team? Well, most physicians in the past were not trained to lead or to really be in teams. Medical school, when I was in medical school, was a competitive sport. And you tended to think of physicians within the sort of old-fashioned heroic model of out there, you know, saving one patient at a time. And that's the way that the system was paid. So you got paid for your individual service. So as you're thinking about physicians and where they've come from and other clinicians, it's been from a a point of view that it's something that they weren't used to, they didn't understand, and weren't trained to do. What's happened, though, over the course of the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years is that many, many small steps have occurred that have allowed much more focus on the um, the ability to develop leadership skills and team-based skills with clinicians and really start with just some basic things. It was the development of huddles. It was the development of some of the concepts around patient safety. And it was the um, ability, quite frankly, for physicians to understand that once they had a team on board, they could be more efficient and less exhausted all the time, and the patients had more support and they and more got done. I could also see that there there's a tension between the PCP, who is steering that particular whole patient's care plan, and maybe, you know, some ologist. If the PCP deprescribes something that the cardiologist wrote, but then there's quality metrics and whatnot that that cardiologist is also a part of, and they wrote that med or whatever, they did in in an effort to keep their quality metrics up. And then you've got the PCP who changed it. I could see that there'd be some interesting conversations that transpire. How does that typically work out? I don't think those conversations actually happen like that. And my experience is that if you've got a good relationship with a specialist because they understand that you're providing good care, that those conversations are good and healthy and really part of the satisfying part of medicine. What you also realize, of course, is that cardiologist wants to be uh, wants a referral from you in the future. And so the idea being that your cardiologist is going to be insulted or something else, I don't think most of those conversations go that way. If you've got two people that are come from two different perspectives that are having in their own mind the type of relationship that they ought around patient care, then typically it's really just about communication as opposed to hierarchy. Sometimes it's those situations where it's not easy because you sit there and you're sort of weighing the benefits and the risk and neither one of you know what's going to happen. But 
if you both have the patient's best interest in mind, you can usually come up with a plan together. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that's talked about quite a bit is the importance of the patients and their clinicians having an open line of communication and working together and shared decision making. But based on what you're saying, it's probably equally important that if you want to be a work in kind of an advanced primary care model, that you as the PCP have open communication and are able to do shared decision making with the specialists that are part of the extended care team. The concept of medical home, you know, got expanded to medical neighborhood, and I believe that. But, you know, integrated care is very much based on some of those principles of access to information, access to communication capabilities, the ability to know what the patient wants and what their goals and needs are, and the ability and the skills to actually provide them good care. So if I'm a clinician and I am looking to do the right thing, you know, like I am just feeling the crush of the healthcare, you know, in air quotes system, because is it really a system (laughs) around me? And I want to spend more than seven minutes with a patient and not be the victim of RVUs. What advice do you have for them? Being part of a team-based care type of organization allows much more likely chance that that's going to occur. As we're looking at payment models, RVU is still very much part of the fee-for-service system that we're on, but there should be the ability to have some part of compensation on the part of the providers, start to be looking at other ways of compensation related to quality and cost and all of that. I would also say that getting training and being parts of teams is something that can help providers. And then the other piece of it is just to really pay attention to what the culture looks like and how much you can have influence in that culture. And I think that most of us have more than we realize. And to what ends? If I feel like I'm empowered, what do I do? You speak up, you speak out, and you design. I think most people get stuck with critical thinking and they don't go to creative thinking. Once you get past critical thinking and get into the phase of creative thinking, you'll find that there's just a ton of folks out there who want to be with you, who want to create with you. And that's really the piece and the component that I hope becomes a a true part of medical education and medical culture going forward. Where can people go to learn more about Aventus? Aventus wholehealth.com. You can follow my tweets at at GraceT22. We look forward to anybody interested in hearing about what we're doing and want to be part of it. Dr. Terrell, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks a lot. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.